You're listening to Bick and the Boss on Sportsnet 650. Yes, indeed. Summertime is here, so Canuck Central is going to be put on the back burner for at least the next few weeks. It's uh, Craig McEwen from Bick and the Boss. Bick Nazar just uh, putting in a shift with Karen Sermon. So he is not going to be joining me today. I'll be riding uh, solo for the next couple. Then Bick returns to the big chair here. Uh, Bick and the Boss, though we should mention, is brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Give yourself the avenue advantage and stay under the cap by saving thousands on select Kubota skid steers and excavators. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. The uh, Canucks might not have a lot of news, and we're not doing Canucks Central, but there is word of a former Canuck player having to hang it up. Veteran backup goaltender Anders Nilsson is stepping away from pro hockey due to post-concussion symptoms and neck problems. He announced his retirement on Instagram. Um, The 31-year-old last played in Ottawa during the 2019-20 season. He was traded to the Lightning in December of 2020, but never suited up for the club and became an unrestricted free agent this uh, summer. Too bad for uh, Nielsen. He uh, did not stay long here in Vancouver. Uh, He played 39 games, had a 3.33 goals against average. Save percentage, mm, below 9. It was uh, .899, so not the best of runs as a member of the Vancouver Canucks. So with him retiring and playing under 50 games for Vancouver, got me to thinking, and and I'm going to bring Greg Ballack in here because he just loves goalie talk. You know, as we kick off the show, and again, not Canucks Central, but it it is some hockey talk here to start. Uh, Who's the best Canuck goalie to play 50 games or less? And some options here for you, Greg. Peter Scudra. He had 46 uh, games for the Canucks, 19 wins, a 2.57 goals against average. Archer's Herve, similar, uh, strong as a backup for Vancouver. Goalie Bob, Bob Essenza, 39 games played, 18 wins, a 2.68 goals against average. The Sandman, Curtis Sanford, Yo-Yo, Johan Hedberg, or uh, Andrew Raycroft. Uh, a, a mix of guys. And listen, John Garrett was just over the bar at 50, so we, we, we couldn't go to Cheech for that, Greg. But um, if you look at the goalies who have played 50 or less than the Canucks, out of that list, or maybe you have your own, which one jumps out at you? Well, Hershey also, we should add, also doesn't crack the list. He, he, he got over 50, so we yep. can't include him. No bias there. Uh, I have a hard time going against backup Bob, to be honest with you. Bob Essenza, how can you go away from that? He, he's kind of the quintessential Canucks all-time backup, is he not? Yeah, I would agree with you. Yeah. He he was one of those guys who could just be counted on whenever you put him in the net. And that's really what you want from your backup. Mm-hmm. I mean, we see this year with the Canucks moving forward, uh, Thatcher Demko, with a, a very experienced backup in Yarrow Holak. You want a guy who can you know win you more games than you lose, get a, a good save percentage, and, and just give you that opportunity. I think John Garrett mentioned uh, a week or two ago about you know, 50-50. Uh, 500, but you know, mm-hmm. if they can do even better than that, that, that would be something yeah. as well. Yeah, and you look at what he does now. What has he done in his post-playing career? He's been a coach <laughs> the entire time with the Boston Bruins. You know, Sad that he had to be part of that 2011 team that came here, but he's been a coach. So you basically had a goalie coach as your backup 
as long he was as he was there. So he's he's a student of the game, and that's kind of what you want in your backup goaltender. You're welcome to chime in here on Bick and the Boss. Uh, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text inbox. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver, online at DunbarLumber.com. We'll continue that ranking of the uh, 50 club for the Canucks as we move along here with the show. But the biggest hockey news, uh, I would say, is the fact that uh, Team Canada has named its Olympic staff, coaches and management, if the NHL decides to take part in the uh, games coming up in Beijing. In a real quick amount of time, considering the summer were pushed, uh, those 22 Winter Olympics just around the corner. John Cooper, the Prince George uh, boy and uh, Tampa Bay Lightning bench boss, has been named the head coach. He'll be joined by Bruce Cassidy, Peter DeBoer, Barry Trotz. Uh, and in the management chair, uh, that's an interesting mix as well. Doug Armstrong, uh, Kenny Holland, guys who've been around the program. Uh, Roberto Luongo and Ronnie Francis, Don Sweeney joining. So interesting that Canada is, is setting the Ducks up in a row for this Olympic tournament. But of course, it remains to be seen whether NHL players will take part. But the due diligence has to be done here. And... Naming John Cooper as a head coach, a guy who's coming off back-to-back Stanley Cups, is not a bad move. We were hoping to hear from uh, John Cooper there, but uh, we didn't quite get there. Greg Ballack is still dreaming about goalies, so he uh, he the the queue were 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 uh, were in studio. Uh, we're we'll we'll maybe get to that John Cooper uh, clip a little bit later. But um, joining us now. Uh, to talk about uh, the selection, the Olympic coaches, and all things hockey, uh, Mike Zeisberger. Michael, uh, how are you doing? NHL.com. It's been a while since you and I have, have chatted or seen each other, especially with COVID, but just on the beat in general. Uh, how are things treating you, and, and uh, do you like the decision to bring in John Cooper as a head coach of Canada? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on very much. Uh, it's always uh Great talking to you guys uh, and all the fans out in uh, Canada's most beautiful city and uh, doing well. And I, you know what, I, I thought it was a slam dunk. I've thought that for a few years now because John Cooper just seems to have a way to relate to players. And obviously, um, you know, for, for various reasons, when the book was closed on the Mike Babcock era and he obviously, uh, you know, was behind the bench for back-to-back uh, gold medals for Canada. Um, John Cooper was just a guy, and, and you saw, you know, when in the 2017 World Championships, and he was an assistant for the Young Guns team um, at the 2016 World Cup of Hockey. And by the way, uh, you know, he coached McDavid there. Uh, so I think it's a good bet. I think we're not uh, stretching it by saying that he'll have the chance to do it again. But I just... I think he's the perfect guy to be the head head man there. I think we've seen the way that Coop can adjust the way the philosophy of a team and that, you know, we remember when they got eliminated by Columbus uh, a couple of years ago, you know, they, they changed their style, they changed their attitude and it's led to back to back cups. So, um, you know, I, I think he was he, he's he's been for a couple of years my number one choice. 
And then you look at the assistant coaches, the way that Peter DeBoer has had success everywhere that he's been, the way that Bruce Cassidy has stepped in to a Boston Bruins team that has been fluid. They've, they, you know, um, with Chara going and, and, you know, Tuka Rat, you know, uh, Chara leaving last, last, uh, in the last off season and Tuka Rat going through injury things and, and, uh, Tory Krug leaving and, you know, the Bruins are always competitive, and, and I, I've got a lot of respect for Bruce Cassidy. I thought he he was an excellent choice. Peter DeBoer is an excellent choice. And what can you say about Barry Trotz? I mean, he wins a cup with the Washington Capitals, goes to the New York Islanders, who the year that he is, he's hired um, by the Islanders, they, you know, John Tavares leaves to go to the, to the Toronto Maple Leafs, and all Barry's done is have success and win at least one playoff series in every season or every playoff year uh, of the three that he's been with the Islanders. So I, I love the staff. I love the, the fact that um, a lot of different kinds of thinkers there. Uh, and I, I just think it's a well-rounded staff that has a lot of respect. And if you think about this, when you look, when you look at it, okay, when you look at the last – six Stanley Cups that have been won, and I believe I'm, I'm correct with this. Um, you know, you've got one cup for Barry Trotz, you've got two for John Cooper, and you've got two for Mike Sullivan, who's the coach of the U.S. team. So five of the last six Stanley Cups that have been won, um, the coaches that led their teams to do that will be re- well uh, represented at the Olympics. And, and like I said, Cooper and uh, Trotz, obviously, with Team Canada. And then, uh, you know, when you look at it, uh, a pair for Mike Sullivan, who will be the Team USA coach. Michael Zeisberger joining us here on Bick and the Boss on Sportsnet 650. It's an interesting job to take, isn't it? In the sense that when you coach Canada, it's kind of gold or bust. And the last couple Olympics, they've been so strong and so good. But I would argue that with the way some of these young players are coming up in the National Hockey League now from different countries, United States, Sweden, you know, Russia, that, that it's never an easy thing to take gold. But when you're a Canada coach, it's expected that you win it. So are you, are you surprised that these guys actually jump at this opportunity to take it, even though Yes, they have some of the best players in the world at their disposal. Well, you know, my lasting impression is is Wayne Gretzky in Salt Lake City. Um, When he was running Team Canada at the time, uh, in 2002, and Canada had not won in 50 years a gold medal at the Olympics. And they got got run out of the building um, in in their opening game by the Swedes. you know, one of the best games, and I, and I covered Matt Sundin in, in Toronto, but one of the get, best games that I've ever seen Matt Sundin play. But, you know, you looked at Wayne Gretzky, they would show him up in the stands. He looked like he was passing a kidney stone, okay? Like, like that's the agony that you would see on his face. But I think these guys know that. And, and you know, the chance to, like John Cooper was talking today about, you know, watching the 87 Canada Cup and Mario, the go, Mario Lemieux's great goal in, in Hamilton um, to win that, that three-game series against the, the Soviets and just just what it means to them. And it, it's an entirely different, you know, you coach in the NHL and you're getting paid for it. And, and you know, people, you know, DeBoer's in Vegas and, and um, you know, 
John Cooper has made a great light for himself uh, uh, down in, in Tampa. But, you know, deep down inside, and Coop talked, I asked Cooper about this yesterday, or earlier today during his avails, you know, Coop is still that, there's still part of him that's that kid um, that grew up in St. Uh, you know, Prince George, British Columbia. And, you know, to, to think that, you know, after you watch Mario Lemieux do that, after you watch the golden goal, after you watch um, some of the other highlights, uh, Canada winning that, that gold medal in Salt Lake City and, you know, the fans bursting into O Canada the last minute of the gold medal game. Yeah, you know, there, there is pressure and, and there is all of that. But the upside, you know, they're not getting, it's not like they're getting paid big contracts to do this. They do this because they want to do it. And you can just hear it in their voices. You can see it in their faces. You could see it in Coop's face in the, on, the, on the Zoom call. Um, they cherish this opportunity. Um, that's what hockey means here. And you know what? If the pressure is too much for you, and I'm sure it is for some coaches, uh, they'll, they, you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't take this. But I, I've, I remember after the 2017 World Championships talking to John Cooper about this, and, and he was very much, very much, you know, just humbled and saying, you know, I hope that I have the opportunity down the road um, to get another chance to be some part of, of, of a national team with Team Canada. And now he's, he's, you know, he's the guy. He's the coach, and he's earned it. And, you know, so, they, you know, you might want to take some ulcer pills while you're there because it could be <laughs> yeah. a roller coaster. But, man, the chance to do this, I think they all kind of embrace it. In the Dunbar Lumber text inbox, 650-650, Cooper is the best coach in the NHL. It's not even close. His teams can play any style and win games in multiple ways. Uh, Michael Zeisberger joining us from uh, NHL.com. Uh, so I, I ask you if you had to handicap it. I mean, you're going through the process of picking coaches. You're going through the process of looking at the Olympics and all the the, the pros and cons of, of going to China. What do you think it's a, a fait accompli that they go? I know it's in the schedule. They have, you know, some other plans that if it doesn't work or not. But in your opinion, what is the likelihood of, of this going off with NHL players? You know, um, at the expense of sounding like I'm sitting on the fence, which I am, um, I just think it's too fluid right now. I mean, the New York Times, and I don't know if, if you guys have seen this or not, but came out with the story on what the bubble is going to be like um, in China. And, you know, if you thought it was strict in, in, in Japan right now, uh, it, it's nothing. It's, it's like there weren't any regulations compared to how tight it's going to be in China. So, you know, and, and I think that we've, we've talked about this, about the season as well, the last two seasons, it's too hard to predict because, you know, we're all at the mercy of the pandemic. And even though we think it's better, you saw what happened in Japan. They had some of the worst numbers right now that they've had in the last year and a half. So um, I think you have to be flexible. Um, I know Tom Rennie, the, the head of Hockey Canada, he addressed that today, how flexible you have to be. Because um, the pandemic's not worried about Olympics and they really don't give give a you-know-what uh, the pandemic, the, 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 the disease about the virus, about, you know, whether who's favored in the Olympics and, and getting this, these games in. Um, 
it, it's 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 irrelevant to, to a disease that keeps coming in different phases. We've we've seen like the Delta variant. So you know, without sounding like a doctor about things that I don't know, um, you know, I don't know if we're if 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 players will be going over there or not. Whether NHL players, whether they'll even be a, a hockey Canada or, or you know what's going on with the Olympics. Um, I just think it's good that they. They have a contingency plan in place, and they're going to be ready. But once again, it's going to be determined by factors that are out of all of our hands. Uh, just one more question before we let you go, Zais. Uh Gretzky's trade, August 9th, 1988. You talked about that Canada Cup, and, and I still think they should have passed the puck to Larry Murphy, but I'm a Caps <laughs> fan, so uh, what do I know? But that day, that move, and, and for me as a sports fan, that was the moment in my life where I realized that, hey – Anyone now can be traded. Like, like, as, as much as you know, you, you think of teams trying to improve themselves. That when Wayne Gretzky's moved and the emotion and, and all the tears and all that, but it, it struck me as you know, anyone can be traded. What, what do you think that trade, the impact it's had on hockey, especially in Southern California, but but what it did for the game? And at the time, it was really tough for Oilers fans. But I, I believe overall for the NHL, it was a really good move. Well, number one, uh, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I couldn't say it any better myself. I mean, you know, I, I'm a fan of all sports pretty much. I've covered a lot of them, um, baseball, football, whatever. And you're right. I mean, if Wayne Gretzky can get traded. Now, this is the same Wayne Gretzky who, even if he didn't score a goal, in his entire career, would still be the leading scorer in the National Hockey League um, in its, its illustrious history because he had more assists than the number two guy had points. If a guy like that can get traded, anybody can get traded. Um, we instantly saw what it did to L.A. Um, you know, all of a sudden you've got um, people like like Sly Stallone and and. and movie stars like that started going to the Kings games. Um, they were all of a sudden relevant in Los Angeles. And I think that that had a big, big, you know, I'm not sure, you know, would there be an Anaheim Ducks right now? Uh, would there be a lot of these teams in the Southern, you know, what we used to call the the Sun Belt, uh, if it wasn't for Wayne Gretzky going there? I, I think that you could make a, a logical argument uh, that it wouldn't be. So I, I think the traction and the footprint that 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 trade had on the entire hockey world is is fascinating. Um, it's hard to believe it was that long ago. Uh, I still remember Gretzky's farewell press conference and, and crying. Um, you know, and, and I think it was tough for for Edmonton too because you know. Yeah, we can look back and say people there were spoiled, but Wayne Gretzky was part of the, the cultural fabric there, and that that was tough um, for people there to see it go. And I will end with this: um, as hard as it was, Gretzky goes to L.A. and what a lot of people thought was a one-sided trade. Um, you know, the the Gretzky never won a cup with the Kings, but the Oilers a couple of years later ended up winning a cup without Wayne Gretzky. So it's funny how the hockey world works, that you can have the best player in the game, and it doesn't guarantee you anything. Totally agree. Thanks so much, uh, Mike, for doing this. Really appreciate your time. Enjoy the rest of your summer, and I'm sure we'll catch up down the the road. Uh, But really appreciate the insight on the Olympics and also your memories of the Gretzky trade. 
Thanks very much for having me. Everybody be safe in Canada's most beautiful city, and we'll talk soon. Thanks a lot. Michael Zeisberger from NHL.com joining us here on Bick and the Boss. And uh, Zeis had some really good opinions, thoughts on on the Cooper move and also his memory of the Gretzky thing. And, and I still remember being on holidays. And back then we didn't have cell phones or uh, social media and having to hear about it in the paper uh, the next day. Uh, because I was camping, it just blew my mind that Wayne Gretzky was uh, moved. It is, well, a little past 20 after the hour, but uh, still close enough that uh, it's time for a little bit of don't at me. Greg Ballack will jump in here for a little don't at me. Uh, Greg, don't at me. The Gretzky trade is the reason why we have so many great American hockey players now playing the game. Okay. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna at you on that one. And and what I mean by that is like you look at the hockey revolution in Southern California. Uh you know, the the game took off, as Zeisberger said there in the Sunbelt states, and Wayne Gretzky going there, bringing out uh the fans, almost like a Lakers game, and I and it was really noticeable. You, you used to see, you know, Jack Nicholson and all the stars at Lakers games, but then at Kings games around the glass, even though they were the worst seats all the stars sitting down close because they wanted a piece of what Wayne Gretzky was doing. It's hard hard to get bigger than Wayne Gretzky at that time. It'd be like McDavid going to New York City or something right now. It's it's that kind of impact, and it's hard not to believe it had some kind of uh, effect on Americans paying attention to hockey, that's for sure. Well, I, I know in talking to a lot of the, the, the giants who've come from California, they, they mentioned it, that just seeing Gretzky and... and looking and dreaming and wanting to be like him, it, it really pushed the way for him. Uh, this one in the Dunbar Lumber text inbox, 650-650, uh, don't at me. Who better to coach Team Canada that will have a combined cap of over 100-plus million than John Cooper? Carl, Puck Dynasty. Yeah, okay, the, the shot about over the salary cap. But, Greg, that job, in my opinion, considering the success that Canada's had at recent Olympic Games, it's not like it's Salt Lake. And both Mike Zeisberger and I were at Salt Lake, and and I can remember uh, being in the parking lot. I wasn't in the rink. There's a whole story here, and I'll get into it in a second. But the the fact of the matter is, is that the job almost to me seems to be like a no win situation. Because if you don't win, you're just going to get absolutely completely roasted as to why Canada isn't the best. But you don't always win. The best team doesn't always win. Yeah, and Cooper's the the one with his name and his face out there as the front of it, but it really is a, a collective, I think. When you, you look at this announcement from Hockey Canada today, it's not just John Cooper. It's Bruce Cassidy, Pete DeBoer, and Barry Trotz with John Cooper. That's a pretty good brain trust, I feel like, and I don't think all of the pressure and all the fault would come down on John Cooper if this team doesn't win gold. I think it's a collective of the of the group. So Salt Lake City, I'm, I'm in the parking lot across the street from the rink, and we're looking to buy some tickets. And the tickets at the time were about 1500 US for the gold medal game. And I'm a young guy, mortgage, all that sort of stuff. And when you do the conversion on how bad the Canadian buck was, I just couldn't afford to spend it, Greg. So I waited for the end of the first period. I go out thinking, I'm going to get a skookum deal here. They still wanted 1000 US. So I go back into the NHL headquarters in the parking lot, about 200 yards from the rink. And there's a guy there. And there's all these tickets that haven't been picked up because, believe it or not, people didn't show up. And the guy said, well, I'll sell you a pair. If you just give me the money, you know, I'm, I'm sure it'll be fine. I'm giving him the money for the tickets, which were about 300 each. So $300 US, good deal. 
And his supervisor comes along and says, nope, can't have the tickets. Do you know that those tickets sat in that box the entire game? And I was <laughs> closer than anyone in Canada to that game, but as far away as everyone else, because I'm watching it on TV across, and I can't get into the gold medal game. You could probably hear the rink inside. <laughs> oh, it was just That's brutal. brutal. Yeah. And I, I, you know, third period rolls around. I go, hey, buddy, what about you just give me those tickets now? He goes, oh, I'll get fired. I'm like, they're not coming. The two periods are up. The, the people who need those seats aren't coming for them. But, yeah, it was uh, a special time in Salt Lake uh, for sure. Um, you could have been $600 richer, too. It sucks <laughs> for that guy. Uh, this one in the Dunbar Lumber text inbox, 650-650. The Gretzky trade is conspiracy. NHL forces Oilers to trade him to Kings because hockey was struggling in California and L.A. If he ever got traded, the Kings would have moved to a different city. The NHL forced the Oilers to trade him so they could grow the game in their failed experiment. Hmm. Oliver Stone, Grassy Knoll, thoughts, Greg? I I don't think that's how it how it happened. I think it, I think everyone knows the the situation why it occurred, and I don't think it was a uh, a higher power forcing the hand of the Oilers to trade Wayne Gretzky. I don't know. I I don't buy that one, C Mac. I wasn't alive when it happened, but I don't buy it. <laughs> I don't buy it either. And I'm in for a conspiracy theory. I love them, but I'm not in on that one. This one, just before we uh, take a little time out here on Bick and the Boss, uh, don't at me. I'm pretty sure Tampa won the cup the year before within the salary cap. Yeah, the, John Cooper's a great selection here. Good pick. Uh, he had some great players at his disposal at Tampa, but, but Greg, more to the point is how he got those great players to buy in, which you'll have to do with Canada as well. And in unique circumstances too. He's won in the, the pandemic. He's won in the, the crazy half pandemic season. So it, it, he's, he's able to shape his team and, and win in a variety of different ways, which I think one of our earlier texters pointed out as well. His team is adaptable a lot of the time. And I think you need that in a short tournament, like an Olympics. Uh, still lots more to come here on Bick and the Boss, including uh, a little trip down the I-5 to Seattle. We'll s- talk with Greg Bell about some big news coming out of Seahawks camp. Uh, they had a little scrimmage yesterday, but it's more the players who weren't taking part that is the big story right now as opposed to those who were. That and a whole lot more here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. You're listening to Bick and the Boss on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Bick and the Boss is brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Give yourself the Avenue advantage and stay under the cap by saving thousands on select Kubota skid steers and excavators. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. Time to talk a little bit of football. And a former Seahawk and current uh, member of Good Morning Football, Nate Burleson, was asked, who does he think is going to challenge the Tampa Bay Buccaneers uh, for the uh, top spot in the NFC to go to the Super Bowl. And for all you 12s here in the Van City area, you're going to like what Nate had to say. I believe that Russell Wilson and the Seattle Seahawks, they are the top challengers to Tampa. And and people at home might be sitting back saying, Nate, well, how could that be? Russell Wilson last year started off hot and then towards the end of the season, he was throwing balls to defensive, uncharacteristic interceptions Towards the end of the year, the offense lost his rhythm. They couldn't protect him. He was complaining about his offensive line. We were talking about Russell Wilson possibly being traded. That's all washed under the bridge right now. 
They improved on every side of the ball. You know, you look at special team, they are always decent. Defensively, they got better. Offensively, they're going to fix their uh, offensive line issues. And then Russell Wilson in that passing game, like we're watching right now, we are just seeing the beginning of the Russell Wilson DK Metcalf era. So I truly do believe you got to have a team that can do exactly what the Tampa Bay Buccaneers can do and have a quarterback that when in trouble can improvise. There's no better team to name than the Seattle Seahawks. And I also love the fact that Chris Carson re-signed with the Seahawks, who was really one of the most underappreciated running backs in the business. Over the last few years, top five statistically when it comes to putting up yards on the ground. So for me, it has to be Russell Wilson. I, I have to look at a team that's going to be in the playoffs. I can't say, oh, well, let's let's shake the dice and hope that one of these NFC teams find themselves and they get into the playoffs. No, Russell Wilson has been in the playoffs eight out of the last nine years. So we know one thing for sure. They will be there. Two things for certain. If they fix their problems on offense, then they will be a competition for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. That was Nate Burleson, former Seahawk Canadian kid. Uh, joining us now, Greg Bell from Tacoma News Tribune. And Greg, are you are you on board with Nate suggesting that the Seahawks could be the team this year in the NFC, assuming things go okay, to uh, challenge the defending Super Bowl champs for that uh, title? Well, hi Craig, hi Vancouver. First, I got to figure out the Rams in the NFC West where they can <laughs> challenge anybody else. If they can't figure out how to block Aaron Donald and how to stop Matthew Stafford in the quick pass game. And, all the things that they have had problems with L.A. and Sean McVay the last four or five years, and they're not going anywhere. And this team, even when it won a division and got home field in the playoffs, lost to the Rams in January. So that's job one. Before they worry about Tom Brady and the Buccaneers and Rodgers and Green Bay, they got to get they got to eliminate road playoff games so they can get past the divisional round. And the way you eliminate road playoff games is to win the division. And they are in the most competitive division in the NFL. So it starts without beating L.A. first. Totally agree. And uh, Nate's jumping the gun, but he's on the hype train. He, he wants uh, people in Seattle to uh, be excited. So we're excited here in Vancouver about the Seahawks. But yesterday they had a, a scrimmage, but maybe it was more about who wasn't playing as opposed to who was playing. So we'll talk about the, the X's and O's and, and some of the, the moves that Russell Wilson made, you know, hitting DK Metcalf, all that sort of stuff. But, you know, there's two players, I guess they're holding in, not holding out right now. And you talked about, you know, blocking Aaron Donald and the Rams. So why don't we start on the, the offensive line? And Dwayne Brown apparently uh, isn't, pleased he hasn't received a contract extension where do you think this is headed and you know what what do you think the chances are that this gets done here uh, sooner rather than later well Craig it, it's a two-part question because he is tied to the Jamal Adams situation Dwayne Brown surprised the Seahawks this offseason when he said I want to play well past my 37th birthday he turns 36 this month the end of August and the assumption from many people within the Seahawks and around the Seahawks going into this offseason was Brown was going to play out the final year of his deal here at age 36, get paid $10 million, and probably retire. It's why they drafted Stone Forsythe. They used one of their only three draft picks, the fewest they've ever had in team history, on Stone Forsythe, the left tackle from the University of Florida, 6'8". And they said the day they drafted him, the intent was that he learns under Dwayne Brown this year, a left tackle with the potential, perhaps into 2022 or 23, for Stone Forsythe to take that position after getting groomed by Brown. 
Well, it just so happens that Brown is still the best offensive lineman they have and will be past his 36th birthday and into this season. And he told the Seahawks this spring, you know what, I want to keep playing. And I'd like a new contract before this year gets going so that I have the security and knowing that I have a place here beyond just this year. And they weren't planning on that. They were planning when they traded 13 months ago for Jamal Adams and the Jets to, to re-sign him. And they knew it would make him the highest paid safety. They had a ballpark figure on what that would cost, $16 million a year or more than that. That was part of trading two first-round picks to New York. They knew that cost. But they didn't count on having another all-pro type caliber player, their best offensive lineman, wanting to play until he's 37, 38 years old and to still get paid like one of the best left tackles. So that's the situation with Brown. He has to wait until the Jamal Adams deal is done, which is currently being hung up on what all big money contracts in the NFL are hung up on, and that's guaranteed money up front and signing bonus money and how much in the first two or three years cash is the player going to get. And until that gets settled, then Dwayne Brown has to wait. And he's, as Carol put it yesterday, quote, making a statement by not practicing until he gets it done. Now, look, he played 14 years in the NFL. It's not like he needs to have training camp or any time practice in August. But the Seahawks are installing a new offense with Shane Waldron, and the offensive line is part of that integration and needing to work on it. And the Seahawks and Russell Wilson especially said yesterday they would like Brown on the field well before that opener, September 12th at Indianapolis. It's just not so easy that they can say, okay, let's go get Dwayne Brown a new contract tomorrow because the Jamal Adams situation ties into that. The other complicating factor is if you want to sweeten the pot and get these deals done with kicking in money this year to these two players, well, the cap went down for only the second time ever, uh, the only other time being during a lockout. So it went from 198 to 182 million. So that team, teams are pinching that, and the Seahawks are feeling the pinch of a unprecedented lower cap this year. The flip side of that is in 2022 and then 2023 when the new media rights deals kick in, Craig, they will have extra money. I mean, 220 plus million dollars of cap space. That's 40 more million than they have right now. And that's what they're trying to do with the Jamal Adams and potentially Grain Brown contracts is to pay more later. They don't have as much to pay right now. That's all part of the calculus on why these aren't done yet. Yeah, and, and I want to get into the Adams thing in a minute because Peter King had a, a report where he says the Seahawks have stretched and he wasn't sure how much more they're going to stretch. But with Brown's case, could you see a scenario where they get to a point where they might have to move him out and trade him? Or is this just something, as you said, he's just got to wait in line and, and wait for the other business to take care of? I, I can't. Because he's under contract, they can play him this season, whether he's happy or not. And if he truly wants to deal from someone next year, he will play. So he'll be on the field in Indianapolis September 12th and for when the games are real, if for no other reason than to market himself for some other team after this year to keep playing. So he's going to play, and he's too important to them, their offensive line and to Russell Wilson to trade him. I mean, in the same calendar year that Wilson says, I'm tired of getting hit, and fixed all those waves and manufactured drama of the winter and spring, it would defy common sense to trade your best offensive lineman. And, and leave his back door unprotected. So they, Dwayne Brown will play for them. The question is, when will he practice for that first game for the first time, and will he play for them beyond 2021? Greg Bell joining us from the Tacoma News Tribune, talking a little Seahawks. Uh, you mentioned Jamal Adams. And and from a positive point of view, they're, they're opting in. They're, they're both there. They're 
you know, cheerleading, whatever you want to say yesterday at the scrimmage. But with him and how this is going, you know, he sees himself as uh, almost like a unicorn. Like he's a playmaker. He's he's not a safety. You know, he, he considers himself to be, you know, the one and only in the National Football League. And is that the problem when you try to put a value on that or, or find some money that, you know, will pay him what he thinks he is when, in fact, you know, he plays a position that I'm not so sure that they, they pay as much money as maybe he's wanting? You're right. In that they don't want just safety money. Adams and his camp want beyond safety money for setting the NFL record for sacks by defensive back. He did that last year because the Seahawks needed him to blitz as much as he did, especially in the first half of the season. They were terrible. I mean, leading the free world and setting records on giving up points and passing yards with very little pressure on the quarterback in September and October. So they had to have Adams do that. He was their best pass rusher from safety. But the problem is, when you do that, your back door is wide open in the middle of the field. And Quandre Diggs was the only safety back there to cover. And in the 90% of the times that Jamal Adams didn't get home to the quarterback, they were susceptible to big plays behind him. When they got Carlos Dunlap in the trade from Cincinnati in late October, that changed everything. Adams went back to playing a more traditional safety in the middle of the field, covering rather than blitzing all the time. And the Seahawks found a front four pass rush anchored by Dunlap. It woke up the entire defensive line. And, that's what they're hoping to get with Dunlap re-signing and Kerry Hyder re-signing and Alden Smith trying to revive his career and Alton Robinson his second year after an impressive limited rookie season. and LJ Collier's still in there. I have Daryl Taylor, their second-round pick from last year, who didn't play at all, who they believe can be a force on the edge. They think now they have a front-four pass rush. So Jamal Adams should not get nine-and-a-half sacks this year. By scheme, he shouldn't be blitzing as much as he did. And by scheme, they shouldn't be as risk-taking and susceptible to the deep passes with Adams back in the center of the field. So that's what the Seahawks are telling them. Yeah, you got nine and a half sacks last year. We're not going to use you that way this year by design. If it all goes well, you might have four or five sacks and blitz half the time and be more valuable to us as an all-around cover and tackle safety. So there's the rub. And he wants to be the top paid safety. The Seahawks are willing to pay that. That's $16 million a year. Uh, 15.25 is the top right now. The other problem, the other math to this is that Bobby Wagner makes $18 million a year. It's at a principle, the Seahawks would be probably unlike, unwilling, I should say, to go much above Bobby Wagner's contract because Wagner's been here for a decade and is the captain of the team. Wagner's contract, oh, by the way, ends after next year. And he's still in his young 30s, enough that he would want to continue playing for Seattle. You set the precedent with Jamal Adams of going north of $18 million and then having to have Bobby Wagner's new deal leapfrog it into the $20 millions. again, when the salary cap is going to explode with the new media rights deals in 2023 and 24. But then after the 2023 season, some guy named Russell Wilson's contract comes up. So you see why the Seahawks don't just throw Brinks trucks at these players when they say they're not practicing until they get a new deal. You set a precedent with a Jamal Adams, and then you have your two franchise cornerstones wanting to get paid the next couple of years. And oh, by the way, DK Metcalf's contract ends after next year. And he has so <laughs> performed his second round deal. So in a salary cap league, it's, it's not like the NBA with exceptions and the NHL with the way they can move money around and, and accounting and even major league baseball, you can pay a luxury tax in the NFL. It's a hard cap and you go above it, you lose draft picks and you get fined. So that's what the calculus of Seattle's trying to play with. 
few more minutes here with uh, Greg Bell. Uh, listen, I, 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 I want to ask you about the scrimmage yesterday, and, and I know it's hard to tell from just one scrimmage, but there seemed to be some positive vibes, obviously, that, you know, Russell was, was throwing the ball to DK, the, the big Puna Ford scoops up a, a ball and runs into the end zone. But at least looking at him, and you mentioned how tough this division is and how every game against a division foe is going to be so difficult. And if you're 500 coming out of it, that's probably a, a good thing. Where are they at, do you believe, you know, in a sense that a lot of these games are going to come down to the wire, going to be really tight? After watching that scrimmage yesterday and seeing some stuff, do you think they're trending in the right direction, especially offensively with a new offensive coordinator? Uh, the biggest thing, Craig, that they're doing better, and more importantly for Wilson, is they're getting the ball out more quickly. And he's throwing the ball more quickly on shorter routes. Their pass protection by scheme should be better simply because those guys shouldn't have to block as long. And a lot of problems last year came when teams played two high safeties, covered T.K. Metcalf in November, December, into the playoffs, and then Wilson had to hold on to the ball and got pressured and the long-developing routes. Well, Instead of 40-yard routes, you may only get 4-yard routes. I saw routes yesterday, and I've seen it all training camp, that are as much horizontal or more horizontal than vertical. Two steps and a drag route across right behind the defensive lineman. I think Rams and Cooper Cup and Robert Woods and Gerald Everett and even Todd Gurley. Think about how horizontal that offense is and quick throwing. That's what Seattle's trying to do with Shane Waldron. And by scheme, that should help the pass blocking. If you only have to pass block for two or three seconds instead of five or six, you're going to be twice as good. And that's really what they're trying to do is be quick, quick, and quicker. And it looked good yesterday, and it should have looked good because the starting offense was against the second-team defense. (laughs) If you don't look good against them, (laughs) you're going to have problems when the games get real. So, uh, But the point of how they're doing it, Russell Wilson having more freedom at the line of scrimmage to be more quick, they're getting out of the huddle more quickly. When they get to the line of scrimmage, they're snapping the ball more quickly. It's not just no huddle that a lot of team fans want them to do. It's just the pace between plays and the pace of getting off the ball and getting an attack defense in a defensive mode and then attacking defenses. They react way too much last year to defenses. They want to turn that around and attack defenses this year with quickness. One last one before we let you go. Uh, how long will it take? to work through this, uh, a new program, a new offense, a new coordinator? Because I'm guessing, you know, with the way preseason goes and you're not going to see a lot of Russ or, or, you know, if at all, how long will it take them, do you believe, to kind of get that offense clicking and, and put all these things into place where they're like, okay, now now we've got something here. Now all those, those X's and O's that we've drawn up are working at an optimal level. You know, honestly, I think it's going to take four games into the season, and that fourth game being the Rams on a Thursday night in Seattle. And if they can get either one punched in the mouth by the Rams defense that they have for so many years, or solve the Rams defense by throwing quickly and and not having Aaron Donald and friends be as big a factor, then they'll know where they are offensively. And so coming out of that fourth game against the Rams, they're still having problems establishing Chris Carson in the run. They still can't protect Russell Wilson. Then they know how much work they had to do just to win the division. But if they come out of that and into October, winning that game and, and playing differently, neutralizing the advantages that the Rams have had defensively on them, then you can really gauge where they are with the new system. Uh, that's, that's the telltale. If they did this to beat the Rams. They didn't do this for Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers, like I said, off the top. They did this to win the division and have home playoff games. That's how you get to the Super Bowl. 
The only three times the Seahawks have ever been to the Super Bowl is as the number one seed with home field advantage throughout the playoffs. Yes, they had a home playoff game last year, but that was in the wild card round. They would have been on the road in the second round. They need to get enough wins and win a division and high enough seed to have home playoff games throughout, or else they're not going to go to the Super Bowl. That's what history says. So uh, we're not going to know in training camp. We're probably not going to know in December where this offense is until that Rams game. Greg, excellent stuff. And Nate's on the side they're going to get there. So everything's good. Nate Burleson says it's true. It's going to happen. <laughs> As I know Nate Burleson from my past government, he's a pretty enigmatic guy, an energetic guy. You wouldn't do too bad listening to him. He's a pretty bright fellow. Excellent. Really appreciate it. Fantastic stuff. This was awesome. Uh, I'm sure we'll catch up down the road sometime. Anytime. Thank you. Thanks, Vancouver. Take care. Greg Bell, Tacoma News Tribune, talking some Seahawks and, you know, contract status with Dwayne Brown and Jamal Adams and where that lies and also about the offense. And, uh, you know, you look at Seattle and, and Russ cooking, I'm not so sure we're going to see that type of offense this year, but the the up-tempo, the pace, that is encouraging, if you ask me, especially with the weapons that they have. And taking some of the stress and strain off an offensive line that, you know, has to block too much and, and a quarterback who has to run around for his life. So that decision to go quicker, to, to move things up and to try and be able to combat the Rams is a very smart one. Indeed. Uh, still some more football to come on the other side is Julio Caravetta. will stop by uh, and tell us about the, the lions and their first game in Regina. And uh, we're also here from Peter Quinn, King, uh, as mentioned, uh, he stopped by in Toronto for a little conversation. He was the one who suggested that the Seahawks have stretched in the Adams negotiations, Jamal that is, and not so sure that they're going to be able to stretch much, much more. That and uh, some baseball as well here to come on the Bick and the Boss on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Boss on the official home of the Canucks. Tiki Pete comes out of the box and puts the puck into the back of the net. Sportsnet 650. Hour two of Bick and the Boss here on your home of the Canucks. Sportsnet 650. Craig McEwen. Without Bick. Put in a, a long day with Karen Sermon. Great work on the Rintoul and Sermon show. Vic, programming note, will be with Sat tomorrow on the People's Show. So he's just he's just all over the place, this guy. Vic is our um, Swiss Army knife. He can do it all. He can, you know, go up and down the lineup, bat in any position in the lineup, you know, first, ninth, whatever it is. Vic, Vic can do it all. So happy that he's uh, he's around here. It's uh, good you clarified, C-Mac, because I don't think he was sure where he was going <laughs> the rest of this week. It sounded it didn't sound like he was too confident in what his role was going to be. Yeah, well, you know, Bick, as I said, can do it all. So I can just throw these curveballs at him, Greg Ballack, and, and he'll just knock them out of the park every time. So the BC Lions, unfortunately, didn't knock one out of the park this uh, weekend uh, on Friday when they uh, played their, their first game of the season, but... They did stage a furious comeback. I have to admit, I, I, I turned it off at halftime thinking, oh boy, you know, no Michael Riley, a rookie quarterback. So um, I had to go back and watch it because I missed a, a heck of a second half 
And uh, earlier today on Halford and Bruff, uh, the color commentator for the Lions on radio, one Julio Caravada, who was the last Canadian to start a CFL game for the BC Lions before Friday. He was asked, uh, was he surprised looking down at the field when Nathan Rourke went in and Michael Riley was not starting the game? I won't lie, I was a little surprised given that, um, you know, we had talked to Mike uh, prior to the game. Like, we, we, they were in our hotel. So we basically, you know, we weren't allowed to get close to them. But, you know, I mean, I did have a conversation with them, like, at socially distance, right? So, um, you know, his, his intention all along was that he was going to play. Um, now, I had been out to practice. I went to every practice the, the week leading up to the game. And, you know, I won't lie, I knew something wasn't right in the sense that I saw, I saw Nathan Rourke take every rep. I didn't see Mike take one rep. So, you know, I mean, all my years playing, I mean, I, I kind of had figured, you know, you know, what's going on? Like, you know, if he was going to, if he was going to play, you know, he, there'd be some, some throwing, there'd be some, you know, he'd be doing some things, but he wasn't doing anything. And then, you know, there's also other times where he, he wasn't, he wasn't throwing while, uh, while it was practice. I think he was going out prior to practices and he was trying to figure out how his arm was going to react and the timing to trying to, I guess, maybe numb it out or, you know, whatever medication he was using to try to get that, that, that pain to go away. They were trying to time it so that he knew when he, when he took it and then what, how long it would take. All those things were, were trying to be evaluated through the week. Um, well then, you know, I think when it got to the game, you know, I, obviously all eyes were I, my eyes were on him. I didn't, I, I watched him the entire time he came up with his uniform uh, prior to him being out there just warming up and trying to, and I just, you could see that he just wasn't feeling right. And then maybe, maybe he's just waiting for his arm to feel better, waiting for this stuff to kick in. And then when he came out for the, for the kickoff, um, you know, I said to Moj, I go, Moj, I, I, I don't, I mean, he didn't, he didn't throw at all during their team warm-up. You know, it was very, very, like he threw maybe two or three passes. I said, something's up, man. I, I just can't see him playing. So sure enough, you know, right before kickoff, I could see them talking to Nathan and then, I go, I, I think, I think Nathan's going to start this game. And so that's the way it played out. I just don't think the, whatever he did, he just didn't feel ready enough or the pain wasn't gone enough that he could play. Julia, where is this elbow soreness coming from? Cause I'm trying to figure out if this is going to yeah. be a short-term thing or a long-term thing. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's something that, um, you know, Moj and I went up to, up to training camp, um, the last week of, of, of training camp to try to get a real gauge on where the, like the, the actual team that was going to be there. So, you know, and then with the smoke situation, we only saw one practice, but I've been told like he, he hardly threw um, during training camp as well. And I think what's happened is, you know, that whole 18 month layoff um, has really, really, you know, had an effect on him. And, you know, he had said to me at one point, you know, all the throwing you try to do during the off season, uh, and given all the COVID restrictions and that he was down in the States, I just don't think he was able to probably he wanted to do. And um, when he came to training camp, there is, again, there is, no, there is no substitute for training camp and the soreness and, and, and the, the activity that you have there. You, no matter what you do in your off-season workouts, you're never going to replicate that. So I just think that it ended up happening. It flared up. And tendonitis, if anybody's ever had it, you know, it, it, it's, it's one of those things that can be very, very painful. So, 
I'm I'm with you. I don't know. I, I I'm wondering to myself now, like, what's going to be better this week? Mm-hmm. Um, do they just shut them down and say we're going to shut you down for two weeks and we're going to reevaluate? I don't know. Um, it'll be interesting to find those things out. So the Lions only lost by four points, but yeah. <laughs> they were down thirty-one nothing um, in the first half, which is a tough way yeah. to start the season. Yeah. Um, but. I'm wondering how much credit they deserve for making this a game because obviously they did make a game and they had to make some plays in the second half uh, and the defense stepped up. But but we also know that games change depending on the score. Maybe the Riders' offense got a little more conservative. Maybe the defense mm-hmm. started, um, you know, I don't want to say allowing the Lions to yeah. make to yeah. make throws, but they get in more of a prevent. Um, defense, I, I imagine. Um, how did you see it play out? Well, you know, I I will say that when 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 Saskatchewan got up like that, I was like, holy cow! And then I and I and I felt for for Nathan because you know that's that's a tough scenario to get thrown into. Um, and I also think too that you have to give credit where credit is due. Like the way Saskatchewan played early on was like it was flawless. I was just like, wow this is their first game as well. And, you know, Cody Fajardo was 15 of 15 at one point, and, you know, they're going up and down. And, um, and I, and I do think you're right. There is a sense of you start to ease up a little bit because you think hey, we've got this game in the bag, right? It's, 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 it's over. And momentum's a, you know, it's hard to recapture momentum, right? When it starts to slip away, it's, it's hard to start. Okay. Hey, we got to get back into this thing. Um, but I will say that I, I was very, very impressed with the Lions' resiliency and their ability to, to, to fight back. You know, they, they have a lot of young guys there, and they would, it would have been easy for them just to shut it down. Um, but they didn't. Um, the way they fought back, the way that they defensively were able to shut them down in the second half showed me a lot, right? They just um, they were able to figure some, some things out that early on, obviously, was uh, defensively, they just couldn't stop that first down success that Saskatchewan was having. And then Cody Pajardo on second down and four and three was just throwing hitches and slants and keeping it very, very simple. And they were just moving the ball up and down. So when they were able to stop them on first down and then they defensively, they were forcing them into, you know, a little bit more uncomfortable situations, getting a little bit more pressure. They, uh, you know, they started to make some things happen defensively and offensively. Mike, when he got in there, you could see that he had a real command of what they were trying to do defensively and, his ability to, to throw where he needed to throw was great. It just was the effectiveness of the throw, right? He just couldn't throw the way he wanted to. And, um, you know, I figured something had to be happening with his hand, whether the numbness was going into his hand and he couldn't feel it because the ball just wasn't spinning the way he wanted it to. And, but overall, I thought that their, their ability to come back was, was something else. And I think that's a positive that you have to build on, but you know, in the end, you're still 0-1, right? And it's about winning. What was the atmosphere like at Mosaic? Oh, it was electric. It really was. Uh, out of all the places to to, to want to start, I think that would have been uh, that would have been the top of the list, right? You know, what kind of atmosphere you're going to get there. It's, it's just such a, a great vibe. Um, from you know, even when you get there off the off the plane, you know, riding in that cab, your cabbie's pumped up because there's football and he wants to talk about it and you go to the restaurant and everybody wants to talk about it and so it's just it's just a real cool vibe you know they 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 have such a fantastic fan base there and uh it was just great to see people you know out and about and you know at a football game and having fun and enjoying themselves uh, after the last 18 months for everybody 
Uh, obviously, big concern about Michael Riley's health. Um, how much concern is there from a Lions perspective about their kicking game? Yeah, um, you know, that's. I knew that this going into the season was going to be. Um, it was going to be interesting with the two young guys and um, especially um, for Yamasaki, who's, you know, who's kicked in the Japanese league, but this, this was a big difference. And I will, you know, having kicked in the league as well, I, I, I do have some sympathy for him because it's not an easy place to kick. Um, there was quite a bit of wind. Um, and I think when you're a young kicker, the idea is that you want to power everything as hard as you can you're trying to kick everything as hard as you can and as far as you can and when you get a little bit more experience you start to realize that when the wind is blowing you have to have a little bit more finesse to your game and I just think that lack of experience kicking you know in a place like that is is you know really you know came to the forefront he just um, didn't play the wind the right way and and you know missed two field goals and an extra point that would have been huge in the outcome but those are the kinds of things, those are the growing pains you're going to have with a rookie kicker. You know, it's funny, I talked to Louis Pisaglia yesterday. He gave me a call and we were talking about it. And he remembered back to his rookie season and said that, you know, he can remember that he struggled at times too. So it's a process. Um, anytime you go with a young guy, you're going to get mistakes. You hope those mistakes don't cost you games. But in this case, it was unfortunate because they probably could have pulled it out if they would have been able to kick some of those, make some of those field goals. But um, overall, uh, you know, I think they they like him and they want to continue to try to give him a chance because he does have a very good leg. The BC Lions, uh, next up for them, a trip to Calgary as they stay on the road to open the uh, season. That's Thursday night against the Stamps, two teams that are uh, still looking for some success on the year. And, and we'll see with Michael Riley where he's at and if he's able to play. But my suspicion would be that uh, the Leos are going to have to rely on uh, Nathan Rourke. And, you know, listen, he was put in the fire. Tough place to play, as Julio said. Probably one of the worst places to make your CFL debut. But after settling down and watching, you know, Michael Riley play and coming in late in the game and driving down for – uh, touchdown, you know, uh, it it wasn't all bad. So we'll have to see with the BC Lions where they go from here. But, uh, yes, some quarterback questions to be answered again this Thursday when they take on the Stamps in Calgary, uh, down south, and at NFL training camps obviously underway. We had a good conversation with Greg Bell uh, from the Tacoma News Tribune about the Seattle Seahawks uh, in Toronto today and the writer's block. Uh, Peter King, one of the best of the best, the Monday morning uh, quarterback for NBC, uh, joined uh, Richard Deitch and George Russick. And they had a, a conversation about, you know, all things four down football, including the uh, new contract for the Buffalo Bills starting quarterback. Josh Allen signs a monstrous extension with the Buffalo Bills, $150 million guaranteed. And if you're a Bills fan, do you have any worry that this guy could have any sort of regression moving forward? Or is he one of the top four or five quarterbacks in the NFL for the next decade? I think his, I think that I wouldn't have a lot of worry about him. Um, I, I don't see him regressing. Like, I, I mean, if you had to make a choice right now with all the young quarterbacks in football, and whether you should pay him now or wait, 
I'd wait on Baker Mayfield. I would not wait on Josh Allen. I just I think he's proven enough over the last couple of years, particularly, uh, to think that he's the genuine item. Peter, you um, you went to Kansas City. Uh, you went to the Chiefs camp, I should say, for your column today on NBC Sports, which it was really interesting. I found the the whole changing of the entire offensive line of the Chiefs quite fascinating. Um, given people in this market are obviously interested in the Bills in relation to the Chiefs, from what you saw of the Chiefs, do you, could you give us a sense, at least from your impression preseason, where how you see that gap? Has that gap been extended because of the Chiefs' move? Or is the gap shortened because obviously Buffalo continues to get better building around a young quarterback? Richard, that's a great question. And I think it's the question that everybody, you know, who is looking at the balance of power uh, in this division, I think everybody is looking at that and wondering exactly what you're wondering. And I guess what I would say is that, look, you know, the Chiefs had a gigantic Achilles heel last year, which was at the end of the season, which was a battered offensive line, and they really got the tar beat out of them um, against Tampa Bay. And, and look, it's hard to say yet what a brand-new offensive line is going to mean, but it sure seems to me that there is an opening right now for a really good and, and, you know, a good team, especially on the defensive front, you know, to make some hay early um, against the Kansas City Chiefs. Now, they open with Cleveland, Kansas City does, and Cleveland gave them a really good game uh, in the divisional round last year. The last two times the Bills have faced uh, Kansas City, they've lost by 14 and 9 points, and they'll play them again the third time in, I think, 52 weeks in October. And I kind of look at it like if the Kansas City offensive line is still, you know, if they've rebuilt it and it's good, I think it's going to be hard for anybody to beat them. But I think without Gregory Russo uh, and, and probably Jerry Hughes being really impactful early on uh, and, and Rousseau, who was kind of a risky pick anyway, as a pass rusher early in the draft, um, you know, for Buffalo, for them to essentially have a huge game against Kansas City and to match up well against them, I think their pass rush really is going to have to get home on the homes. Heading into this season, Peter, are the Bills, Browns, and Chiefs your best three in the AFC? Yeah, I had them in order of uh, Kansas City, Buffalo, and Cleveland. Uh, those are the three best teams, I think, in the AFC right now. But, you know, Tennessee might be good. Uh, Miami might be good if two is good. Uh, my my AFC dark horse is Chargers. I think the Chargers oh. could be really good. Um, now, Joey Bosa's got to come back. Uh, he's got to have a huge, almost defensive player of the year season. Uh, Darwin, James, Derwin James has to stay healthy and, and Herbert's got to be as good as he was last year. And I don't see any reason why he wouldn't, but I really, I really think the chargers have a chance to, 
to make some noise in the playoffs. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that's a team to watch. I want to ask you about the NFC um, because it's like so much, uh, so much of like if you're going to try to project the NFC it has to do with I imagine just how you how you anticipate the Aaron Rodgers situation to be in Green Bay. But if I just sort of look at it, Peter, like writ large. Like, I, I, it's very hard for me to make an argument that the Tampa Bay Bucks are not the best team in the NFC by a lot outside of just the fact that it's hard to repeat. But, you know, the Saints, I don't think, will be as good, obviously, without Drew Brees. I think the Packers have a question mark just because, you know, you have to ask yourself how it's going to work with Aaron Rodgers before it works. And then the rest of the, I think, the five best teams in the league or the four, the three best teams in the league, as you mentioned, are... um maybe AFC teams. So, you know, whether it's the chiefs, the bills, and then, you know, fill in the blank for your next team. Do you like, do you like the bucks as much as it, it seems? I mean, everybody's back. I don't think there's going to be a regression with Brady. You know, what would I be missing? Not to think that they will be just as good this year, if not better. You make, you make a lot of good points. I, Richard, I think what troubles me a little bit about the bucks. And again, look, the Bucks were dominant on Super Sunday. They played very well in Green Bay. But, in and again, I, I always hate doing this. I really, really hate doing this. But if you think about what happened in the NFC Championship game, Aaron Rodgers is one completion away from scoring a touchdown and winning the NFC Championship game, or at least leaving Tom Brady with a very long field, um, you know, to try to win that game in the last two minutes. So, so I guess, I guess the point I would make is that I think the Packers have a chance and I think Aaron Rodgers, I think it's going to be fine this year. I just, I, I, I mean, Aaron Rodgers is back. He's got Randall Cobb. He's real comfortable with Devonte Adams is playing for a contract. They're going to be fine, absolutely fine, and I think they're going to be really good. So the big question I have in the NFC is I think two of the best four teams are in the West. Okay, I love the Rams, and I love the 49ers. And I kind of like Seattle, but I don't know. There seem to be storm clouds there. Um, But – I think the 49ers are going to be back to their 2019 level. And uh, I think I've think i been telling everybody this. If you have a fantasy football team uh, and you want to, you want to get a quarterback who's not going to be the, like among the top three quarterbacks picked in fantasy football, you want to wait a little while to get your quarterback, take Matthew Stafford. You won't regret it. Peter King, NFL writer for NBC Sports, joining us here on Writer's Block, George Rusick, Richard Deitch, Sportsnet 590, the fans. Sticking in that division, Peter, what's your read on the Cardinals? Because they made a ton of offseason moves, high-profile signings, J.J. Watt, A.J. Green. But does everything lie on the shoulders of Kyler Murray? Can he take the next step and get the Cardinals to the playoffs? I've been to eight training camps so far, and I try to come out of there thinking about what the big story is and trying to write about the big story. And I think in six of my eight so far, it's either been the quarterback or revolved around the quarterback or, you know, the quarterback has been a big part of it. It's, it's strange to think about it 
But with all those moves that the Cardinals made, it's like they made all those moves to buttress the supporting cast for Kyler Murray. You know, even basically the J.J. Watt move, you know, that's the seemingly anyway help Chandler Jones, uh, you know, and give another alternative um, for a pass rush that really needs to be better in Arizona. But, again, look, I, I've heard all the wonderful things like about A.J. Green in training camp, and I just – I don't mean to be to- a total skeptic, but i got to see that one to believe it. When's the last time A.J. Green has been great for an extended period of time? Like three or four years. He just – he pretty much disappeared at the end of his career in Cincinnati. And so can he be great? Will he be great? We'll see. I haven't really seen it in recent years, so we'll see. I think the one other thing is Kyle Murray's a little bit on trial. Kyler Murray's on trial here. Um, And look, the same way that you can say with a lot of quarterbacks in year three that people still have questions about them, people still have a few questions about Kyler Murray, and I don't think he is – I mean, he's not a top-10 NFL quarterback right now. Now he might be. Uh, but in that division, you might need a top-10 quarterback to win it. Interesting stuff there from Peter King uh, from 590, the fan in Toronto. King also reporting today that he said, quote, I hear the Seahawks have stretched themselves quite a bit for the Jamal Adams deal, but he's still not happy with the offer. And if you know Seattle's negotiation stance, it's not likely the offer is going to change much now. Obviously remains to be seen, but that's the the one of the big stories at Seahawks camp. And we talked a little Hawks earlier in the program is the Jamal Adams deal, what he wants, where it's going to go. And listen, this guy's a playmaker, and he wants to be paid as such. He doesn't want to be paid as a safety, which, of course, puts some other uh, problems in the Seahawks camp. But it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out here down the road. Uh, Baseball on tap coming up next here on Bick and the Boss. As uh, we head to Toronto, where the streaking Jays, yes, The streaking Toronto Blue Jays have been making some big noise. Josh Goldberg from Jays Talk will join us and we'll ask him about uh, the homestand, what it's like now in Toronto with some fans in the building and that support, and also, you know, what it's like to have such a a, a star-studded lineup and finally some pitching. That when we return here on your home of the Canucks Sportsnet 650. You're listening to Bick and the Boss on Sportsnet 650. Yes, Jays fever sweeping the nation. Large and in charge in Toronto. Also in Quebec, apparently. And in BC, the, the Jays bandwagon getting pretty busy. It's, it's a little disappointing that uh, the Bluebirds are headed this way. And uh, as of right now, unless you want to jump on a plane... You won't be able to go down and see them in Seattle. But uh, Toronto, boy, they've been on a tear. And and George Springer, for the second week in a row, he is your AL Player of the Week. Uh, Springer just mashing. Um, he's He's been incredible uh, since going to Rogers Center. The team has been incredible since going there. Uh, he's batting 364, three home runs, 11 RBI in the eight games at Rogers Center. And uh, I, I know one guy who's pretty pumped about it. Uh 
He does Jay's talk for us in Toronto. Josh Goldberg uh, joining us uh, in uh, just a couple of minutes. But Josh, I am sure, was jumping for joy watching that Springer Dinger, as it's being called. Is The, the Jays taking care of business. You know, they, they sweep the Royals. They do a good job uh, against winning the series against Cleveland. And then uh, Boston comes to town. And, hey, for a while there, it looked like it was going to be a split. But, uh, Josh, Toronto finds a way to pull it out at home. And, and is this home field advantage really something for this Blue Jays team? No question. Yeah. And I uh, appreciate you having me uh, as always good to talk to you. And yeah, you, you know, winning games the way that they did yesterday and even on Saturday in, in the walk-off fashion, you could think to you know, a bunch of series at, at Salem Field in Buffalo, especially against this Red Sox team, where it was basically just a road game. It was all Red Sox fans. And a lot of Blue Jays players made note of that and weren't thrilled about it, but there was nothing that you could really do. And then as soon as this became a reality, again, playing games in front of the fan base here in Toronto, there is a real palpable sense of a home field advantage, even with only 15,000, right? The, the scenes, the sounds of that uh, Springer home run yesterday, you're not getting that uh, in Buffalo. You're not getting that in Dunedin. So I do think that that kind of snowballs a little bit when you have a little bit of belief that you can stage a comeback, stage a rally, and you have the fan base behind you kind of spurring you into action, cheering you on. I do think that just the natural human range of emotion kicks in a little bit. And no question, uh, the Blue Jays' 9-2 and homestand was certainly helped by the home field advantage. There's no doubt about it. Josh Goldberg joining us here on Bick and the Boss on Sportsnet 650. So let's talk about Mr. Springer. And, you know, we all know he loves to hit in that ballpark in Toronto, but it took a while. He's now, you know, front and center, uh, contributing offensively, leading the way. But but what does that do for the, the psyche of the team when you see a guy hit like that, someone they've invested heavily in, and, you know, now that they're, they're really in this playoff chase? Well, I, I think that one of the big reasons that the uh, Blue Jays invested so heavily and, I guess, targeted so aggressively George Springer is because they needed a center fielder, they needed another bat, and he fit both of those targets so perfectly in one package. And it was unfortunate. You know, injuries are, are always a factor for players. You always have to, to worry about them. But now that he's fully healthy, you just look, even with him in the lineup, he's played 43 games. The Jays are 27 and 16, which is a hundred plus win pace. And, you know, like, like, I don't know how much to necessarily read into that. It's only 43 games, but he clearly changes the conversation with this team. That's what they were looking for, an impactful player who could really put them on the map, so to speak, as a franchise that has arrived and is at the point in their rebuild and their franchise trajectory where it's no longer about putting you know prospects in the right place to develop. It's Well, th- there's an established group here, a young core of talent, that is ready to springboard themselves as superstar type players. And we've seen that with Vladdy and Bichette making their first all-star game appearances. Teoscar Hernandez had an all-star game appearance. They brought in Simeon as well, who did the same. And Springer is just the perfect table setter for that because, you know, he, he's a spark plug, but he also hits for power. We've seen the leadoff home runs on the home stand. He won player of the week for the second time. And I think that when opposing teams see George Springer atop that lineup, you just say, oh boy, this is for real. I know that I'm going to have a real tough time getting this lineup out, whether it's through five or six innings. I know I'm going to have to be at my absolute best 
or the likes of Springer and anyone else in that lineup is going to be able to do damage. So he just totally changed the game uh, when they signed him. And now that he is the player that everyone envisioned, now that he's healthy again, it's coming to fruition. Listen, I'm not suggesting it was the Bautista bat flip or anything, but the excitement really did jump through the TV screen when you saw that home run by Springer yesterday. And you could see the excitement in him, like trying to, I, I guess it's hard maybe sometimes to lead by example in baseball because you got to be clutch and you got to bring these these big hits and all that sort of stuff. But that never say die attitude, the fact that they were able to take three or four from Boston, it must just do wonders for the team's confidence. Uh, you know, forget about the fact it's at home and all the fans are cheering for you, but just it, they have a swagger and attitude now, don't they, Josh, that, that maybe was missing a little bit earlier? No doubt. Once you feel as though that uh, any game is winnable with just the way that you play and especially with the explosive offense uh, that this club boasts and now that they have the starting pitching, they, I think, now truly do believe and the fans definitely believe, and I think it's legitimate that they can hang with and beat any team because, you know, you need to be able to score runs in a multitude of ways and in a multitude of different situations. And, you know, this Blue Jays lineup still needs to do that in the late stages, but yesterday was a great step to, to be able to hit that kind of home run in the eighth inning, but starting pitching quality offense and a bullpen that can pull its weight. That's what you need to be a really good major league team. And the Blue Jays basically have that now. I know that there's still some question marks about the bullpen, but, you know, once you feel like you can you can beat any team and you have that swagger and you look at the other side uh, of the field and the other dugout and say, we're not worse than these guys, we're better than these guys, we should be able to beat them, then that's when you, I think, know that you are a team to be reckoned with. And you look at the schedule coming up here, I know that it's always tricky going out to California and always tricky going out to Seattle. The different time zone, the Western uh, American trips are always confusingly tough for the Blue Jays over the years, but the Angels, the Mariners, and then they have Washington for a couple of games who's rebuilding now. Those are winnable games, and they've got a lot of winnable games over the next couple of months. There's going to be some tough ones against playoff-type teams, but now they're at the point where games like uh, we've got coming up against the Angels and, and ones where you see Seattle, you should be looking at that as bankable wins. you got to win these series and then you know, take your chances against Tampa and Oakland and the White Sox. And if you can win a bit more than you lose of those games and take care of business against the teams that you're supposed to take care of business against, then I'm pretty confident that the Blue Jays are going to be in the playoffs when it's all said and done. Josh Goldberg from Jays Talk on the Fan in Toronto, joining us here on Bick and the Boss, Sportsnet 650. Marcus in the Dunbar Lumber Tech's inbox, 650-650. The streaking Jays, and it's a winning streak, not a losing streak for once. Yeah, it, it, there's just an excitement even out here, Josh, for the team. And if you look at it, uh, at the trade deadline July 30th, they were 9.5 back of the Red Sox and 4.5 back of Oakland for the second wildcard spot. You know, after that win yesterday... They trail Boston now by just three, and they seem to be in a bit of a free fall. And the A's still have the second wild card, but are within striking distance. And you mentioned it there, the pitching and what that means to this team. And it's not just the bullpen, it's the starters, but look at the amount of runs they just gave up in this series at home. And, and it's probably a better pitcher's part, no question, but the move to bring in Jose Barrios has been masterful. And I'm guessing much like Springer leading the way offensively, here's a guy who can also maybe lead the way for, for some of the younger pitchers and guys on the staff, you know, Manoa, what they can learn from this guy is being a competitor and just going out there and battling day in and day out. 
Well, the interesting thing that you hear these days from anyone around the Blue Jays, but particularly guys in the rotation, is that it, we're at the point in the season now where they've established a little bit of a bond. You know, there's a sense of camaraderie. And now that there's quality seemingly every day, like even Ross Stripling, who's the fifth starter, if you take away the starts against the Boston Red Sox, he's been really, really good. And I know that you have to factor that in. But as far as a, a fifth starter standpoint of production, you couldn't ask for much better than what, what Ross Stripling's given you. And so if you look at, you know, Ryu up until yesterday, his last four or five starts were excellent. So you look at what he's mostly been able to do. Robbie Ray's been terrific. Barrios comes in. He's been terrific. Even Alec Manoa, the rookie, hasn't really tailed off at all. So you see somebody throw six or seven innings of two-run ball or shutout ball or something like that. And then the next starter, they have said, yeah, we thrive on that. It's a domino effect one guy goes out and gets it done, then we say, well, we want to go out there and get it done the same way. And I think that's sort of what you've seen, certainly over this homestand. And I think what we were talking about uh, a little bit earlier, the, the home field advantage, the energy pitching at the Rogers Center factors in, into it as well. And we've seen great starts, basically the entire homestand. But I do think that there is a sense of, I don't want to you know, lose pace here. I want to keep pace. I want to keep things going here. You know, if it's Barrios who had a great start and it's Manoa or, or Ray or Ryu starting the following day, then they say, I don't want to lose any momentum here. I want to follow suit with what my rotation mate did. And I think that's what you're seeing. And I think that that's what great rotations do, right? They're consistent one through five and they feed off of each other and they get along. And I think that's what we're seeing now, one through five or even one through six, if you want to include the Stephen Matz as well. Uh, with this Blue Jays rotation. Now, this ball club has had a positive run differential for quite some time. And and I guess if you were to look at the numbers, you would be, man, they should be playing better than this. Did you get a sense, not just the return to home and, and the home field advantages, you just talked about how important that is, but did you get a sense that something had to change here with this team, that something had to go their way? Because I would suggest to you that you, you just don't have that type of run differential and, and sit where you are and not be in the thick of things when you look at it, some other teams that they're chasing are nowhere near where they are when it comes to that stat. Yeah, I would say that I definitely was pretty optimistic, pretty hopeful that a run was coming. Because like you said, you know, I, I understand that some people will say it doesn't really matter if you're just winning a bunch of blowouts and then losing a lot of two run games or one run games, then what does that really say about you? But like, I, I think that there is some merit to that, but the fact that you're able to score so many runs and outscore teams and have the best run differential in the division now, and I believe the uh, second best run di differential in the entire American league, eventually you're just going to start to see the worm turn a little bit because all you need when you have that level of offensive firepower is for starting pitching and the bullpen to start producing a little bit more consistently and a little bit better. And lo and behold, this entire run has coincided with the fact, like we're talking about, that the rotation has been tough as nails, giving you length, giving you quality. And the bullpen has mostly been a pretty solid. Like you think yesterday, Ryu only, Ryu only gives you three and two thirds. And yeah, Patrick Murphy and Kirby Sneed weren't amazing, but they only allowed one run uh, from the fourth inning, fourth, fifth inning on. And that allowed the offense to get back into it. So that kind of stuff shouldn't go unnoticed. And if the offense continues producing, scoring five, six runs a game, and the pitching incrementally improves or steadily improves like we're seeing it, 
then you're going to see runs where a team's going to win 10 of 12 or 15 of 20 or something like that. And that's really what I, I look at is that the pitching has improved and the hitting has basically been the same and wins have started to pile up. You need that well-rounded nature to your ball club uh, to finally start ripping off wins uh, the way this club has over the last week and a half. A few more minutes here with Josh Goldberg, Jay's talk. Uh, Josh, is this sustainable? I mean, is this just catching lightning in a bottle right now, or or do you believe? And you've talked about the the, the schedule coming west and, and having some winnable wall games. And unfortunately, as I mentioned, you know the the Jays fans that would usually travel down from BC or Alberta, unless they're flying down, aren't going to be able to cross the border. It doesn't look like. But is this sustainable for the Jays to? I mean, you're not going to win. Maybe is what they've just done on this homestand. But can they keep it going and going in the right direction and and real? Some of these uh, teams in so yeah definitely I would say I think they've won 10 of 12 which is uh, an 83 percent winning percentage I, I won't go that far but do I think that they can play I don't know like 630 or 650 baseball the rest of the way they have a pretty mediocre remaining strength of schedule there are some tough games but it's pretty much around 500 in terms of the average strength of schedule uh, the rest of the season so like the, we've, we're talking about, I think they've got 52 games left. And I think 90 wins is realistically, 90, 92 wins is what's, what it's going to take to get into the playoffs this year. So you're talking about 30, 32 wins the rest of the way. With the way that this club is shaping up, the lineup looking great, the rotation looking a lot better, I think it's, it's going to be crucial to get Tim Mesa back in the bullpen and Joaquin Soria only threw one inning before hurting his finger. He will be crucial. We'll see what happens with Merriweather, who apparently is kind of close to returning. We'll see what happens there. Nate Pearson as well. Those are X-factor types. But if the rotation continues pitching anywhere near this level, then I think that, yeah, 90-plus wins is very much attainable, and the playoffs are very much within reach. I, I like just the firepower that the Jays have top to bottom. I'll take over any other contender in the wild card picture. Even the Yankees, more than Oakland, more than Boston. Give me the Blue Jays top to bottom. Uh, one last one, Josh, before we let you go. Uh, what's it like in Toronto with this ball club returning? Uh, again, we saw the, the electricity on the TV this weekend, those of us watching from Vancouver. But just the mindset, the mentality, the togetherness in the city, you know, wanting a team that was away for almost two full years, now coming back and having this success. What's it like in the streets of Toronto and how big is this run for them? So we, I think we talked on trade deadline day, which was also coincidentally the, the first game back in Toronto against Kansas City. And there was a lot of buzz and a lot of excitement just to have baseball back. I think there was that sense of hope as maybe this would be a springboard, the return to exactly what has happened, a really great homestand and getting yourself right back into the thick of a playoff race. And now that that has happened, I think it's taken off a whole other level. You can just sense the, the energy from the fan base, you know, post-game shows, the interaction is off the charts. There's so much excitement. There's so much energy. There's so much love, honestly, for this group. And I think that the group itself plays into that because they're a really easy team to like. They have a ton of fun, right, with the home run jacket, and there's antics in the dugout, and there's a lot of personality, a lot of flair, a lot of pizzazz, and that obviously is going to draw in more and more fans. So I just think it's kind of the perfect harmony right now of a fan base that has just been 
so thirsty for baseball and live sports to return and a team that is delivering in terms of quality production on the field, but also a really fun, easy to watch, easygoing, lovable team. So it's just really been kind of the perfect synergy between team and fan base. And I really do think that it uh, has the potential to be a special thing here over the next couple of months uh, that could extend, you know, all the way into October. Josh, really appreciate this fantastic stuff and enjoy the games. I know you have to stay up later, but it's it's the yeah. one time for us out here, at least in Vancouver, where we're like, oh, we can watch a ball game around dinner time. We don't have to race home in the traffic of rush hour to see them play. I was going to say, yeah, this is probably like as, as good as it gets, these West Coast games. For you guys, I'm already trying to train my body uh, to stay up a little bit later doing post-game shows. But uh, late night Jay's talk is always uh, uh, weird and entertaining event, I guess. So I'm looking forward to it. And, yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, certainly the Seattle series just to get a sense of you know what kind of atmosphere it's going to be, like you said, with maybe not as many fans uh, able to make the trek uh, as they normally would. Yeah, and it's too bad because that series is something we circle here on our radio station would have mm-hmm. people down there covering it as well. So uh, there's always next year, as Cub fans used to say. So, uh, But uh, let's hope the Jays keep cooking here. Thanks, Josh. Really appreciate it. Appreciate it, Craig. Josh Goldberg, Jays Talk, Fan 590 in Toronto, joining us here on Bick and the Boss. And yeah, th- there's a buzz uh, about this Jays team. And listen, you're you're listening to a guy who's born and raised in Vancouver, uh, older, probably, if I'm honest, you know, hate everything Toronto, whether it's Leafs or Jays. But I, I say that, you know, in Toronto Blue Jays case, just a, a little facetiously. Listen, I, I love to see that that ball club do well, but the excitement, you know, that home run uh, by Springer, you know, that was so dramatic. And again, it's not the Bautista bat flip, but it was something that brought me out of my seat on the weekend as, you, as you're watching sports now in a little bit of a downtime between the National Hockey League starting up uh, some training camps, uh, football not quite there yet in the NFL. It's, it's a time for the Jays to take hold of this. And, and for us on the West Coast... That trip to Seattle is probably one of the best uh, trips you can go on. It's too bad it won't happen this year, again, unless you're flying down there. But bottom line, that that game is kind of like a home game. What Much like uh, what the Jays were complaining about when they played the Red Sox in Buffalo, how a lot of Boston fans would go there and cheer for the Red Sox, the same holds true down in Seattle when it comes to the Blue Jays. So we won't get that this year, but we are definitely getting a, a buzz uh, this time around for this Blue Jays baseball team. That pretty much uh, puts a wrap on the show here. Bick and the Boss, but uh, lots more to come. It's the People's Show. Uh, Coming up next, uh, we have uh, Dan Schulman, more Jays talk, Uh, Brian McFadden, Brendan Dunlop, Adam Day, assistant coach, women's national soccer. Uh, So lots of soccer talk as well. Uh, A big, big tournament for the Canadian women's team in Japan, and and the momentum in that will hopefully carry over. And at uh, 6 o'clock, Irfan Gaffar will join little hockey as well thrown in your way. It's that time of year, folks. Lots to chew on, lots to talk about. Soccer, hockey, baseball, football, you name it. You'll have it here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.